Well, uh, let's uh, turn then with a view to God's blessing to Matthew chapter 26 again. And uh, reading again at verse 62. Matthew twenty six sixty two. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So midway through verse 63 there, you see that Caiaphas, the high priest, puts Christ under oath by the living God. And uh, although it hasn't um, been very obvious from our singings or our readings, what I really want uh, to do with you today is to resume our study of the third commandment, which of course tells us very powerfully that we must not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And really in considering this passage with you this morning and tonight, Uh, we will still be looking at that commandment, what it means not to take God's name in vain. Now, at some time, I suppose, since we began uh, our study of that commandment, and you'll remember that it just requires us to take up or to use God's name with great care, uh, with reverence, with respect, not just to take it up on our lips, but, of course, to take it up in our life by profession, to take it up in baptism or to take it up in the Lord's Supper. And we've seen various ways in which this commandment can be broken. And last time particularly we saw the ways in which we tend to break it by speech, uh, by using words that are profane and various degrees of profanity which rise up all the way to blasphemy. And uh, although the commandment is so often associated with speech uh, by all of us, it's still important to remember that we can break this commandment by what we do and what we are, as well as by what we say. But I remembered last time that I said to you that there was an important area of this commandment that we needed to look at as well, particularly in our own day. Uh, when people are very careless in regard to these things. And that's sadly not just the case in the world generally or in the state, but also in the church. And that's the area, the particularly sacred area of promises, uh, oaths and vows, because there are uh, special degrees of importance attached to them. Now, when it comes to promises, oaths and vows, the most basic of these is the promise, and it's really the idea of a promise that lies at the heart of all of them. And a promise is essentially something that you pledge to do or to say, or if you like, something that you pledge not to do 
or not to say. In any case, it is a pledge. You commit yourself. Uh, the most frequent promiser in the Bible is God himself. Um, the word promise is used very often for what God says that he will do and what he will accomplish in this world. And in fact, nearly every use of the word promise is connected with God. But when we promise, or when anybody promises, uh, it is your own word uh, that is given, and it's your own character and your own integrity that is at stake in connection with a promise. Um, God's name is not explicitly taken in in connection with a promise. Now, that doesn't mean that God is irrelevant in connection with a promise, because God is not irrelevant ever, anywhere, anytime. In other words, if I promise you something, or if you promise me something, well, let's just stick at the first. If I promise you something, it's my own integrity and my character that is at stake. I'm not bringing the name of God into it at all. Nonetheless, God sees, God hears, and God judges. God is aware that I have made a promise. God is aware that I have pledged myself in some way to you, to say or to do something or not to say or not to do something. But in the strict sense, God is not present in the transaction. It's me and you, a pledge to say or to do. And of course, when God promises to us, respectfully speaking, it's his own integrity and it's his own character that's on the line. But when it comes to oaths and vows, God is explicitly brought into the picture. He's not simply there as the one who hears and sees all things. He is called upon, in a special sense, to be a party to the transaction in one way or another. If it is an oath, then God is being brought in as a witness to the oath. Now, an oath is essentially a promise again, but you are calling God to be a formal witness to that promise. So, let's say there is an oath between me and you. Well, that means that we don't simply promise. It rises to the sacredness of calling God to be a witness to that promise. So it's not just your character or mine that's at stake. We are actually calling upon God to identify his character and his integrity with the transaction that is taking place. And we are calling him to judge us on the basis of whether we fulfill that oath or not. So you see immediately that an oath rises in sanctity from a promise. Remember, a promise is simply two parties to each other. God is not explicitly there. With an oath, you have called upon God to be a witness. And you are so confident of what you say that you are confident to call him to back up what you say. A vow rises higher still. I think possibly in our consciousness we might think of an oath as being higher than a vow, but in fact a vow is higher than an oath. Because a vow is a promise made directly to God himself. So this time, 
God is not a witness, he is a direct party. So a vow simply is a promise made to God, where you are promising again to say or to do something. If these three things are clear in our minds, it'll help a lot when it comes to civil life, church life, business transactions, a whole host of things. They are all forms of covenant in one way or another, but a promise is a pledge, an oath is a pledge where God is a formal witness, and a vow is a promise that is made directly to God. And of course that means that a vow is an act of worship. If you are calling upon God in order to make a vow to him, then you are calling upon his name. You are calling upon him to be present. Hence, of course, when vows are taken in church, they are taken in the presence of God. The promises are made to God, addressed to him. Now, in connection with what the Bible says about oaths and vows, it's tempting on the face of it to see a contradiction there. Now, we know there's no contradiction. The Bible does not contradict itself because God doesn't contradict himself. But sometimes it reads as though oaths are commanded. Other times it reads as though they're forbidden. Clearly they are commanded quite often in the Old Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy and chapter 23 and verse 21, we're told that when you make a vow... Now here's a vow to the Lord your God. You shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And it would be sin to you. If you abstain from vowing it shall not be a sin to you. That which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you promised with your mouth. So there's the general sense of the promise being elevated as a vow to God himself. And texts like that could be multiplied. There are many of them. But of course, many of you are probably aware that the Lord Jesus Christ himself tells us to be very careful in connection with oaths. And he puts it in such a way that it seems to be forbidding oaths completely. You have heard that it was said that you shall not swear falsely. But you must perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven, because it's God's throne, nor by the earth, because it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You shall not swear by your head, because you have no power to make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatsoever Whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, I'm not going to go into that text all that much because I already have in connection with this commandment. But you'll remember that what the Lord is forbidding there is not the oath itself. It is the casual and careless way in which people were performing these oaths. In their dealings with each other, they would say, well, I swear this and I swear that. And if they didn't want to use the name of God, for whatever reason, they might swear by Jerusalem or they might swear by the temple or they might swear by the altar or something. And the Lord says, these things are foolish ways of covering what you're doing. Jerusalem is God's holy city. The altar is God's altar. An oath is an oath 
what you swear you swear and God is the witness to what you swear. So effectively the Lord is saying put these things out of your general speech. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. When you're talking to each other, don't trivialize an oath by bringing it into your day-to-day speech and conduct. Uh, Be known as men and women of integrity. Uh, Be known as people who don't take the name of the Lord their God in vain. So that when people hear you say yes, they know you mean yes. When you say no, they know you mean no. Don't cheapen uh, the Lord or his religion by introducing that kind of foolish swearing into your speech. So really the Lord is not saying that you should never swear. What he's saying is that you should not swear carelessly in common or everyday speech. And one reason why we know that's what he meant is because he took an oath himself. He allowed himself to be placed on oath and he answered that oath. On more than one occasion you find Paul swearing in his letter um, He takes an oath by the name of God. For example, to the Corinthians, he does that. So he's not afraid to appeal to God as his witness for what he's saying. So an oath is right and proper, usually in formal situations, like a court of the church or a court of law, but not casual or careless. Now, sometimes in looking at these things, it's not so easy to look at them abstractly or Uh, philosophically or logically, it's actually best and most helpful to look at them in concrete situations. And I think it might be useful for us to look today at a vow, sorry, at an oath, and next Lord's Day to look at a vow, uh, one of the most controversial vows in the Bible. But for now, this morning and tonight, we'll look at an oath, and we'll look at our precious Lord himself as he was put on oath. Now, of course, uh, in reading this chapter, I prefaced it by saying that it was, of course, the night in which he was betrayed and Christ is being brought before Caiaphas for the first of two trials. Now, for a, a trial that is aiming for execution, which is what this uh, trial was aiming for, a trial shouldn't be aiming for that, but anyway, that's what they were looking for, it had to be held over two days. And they're trying to squeeze in this trial before the evening is over so they can have another formal trial immediately in the morning. That's why perhaps maybe you were a little perplexed at the beginning of chapter 7 when it says, after all this about trials and so on, it says that when morning came, the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Uh, That's the second time, a second trial to ratify the first. Now, the first trial itself before Caiaphas was in many ways a kind of formality because the Lord had already appeared on the other side of the courtroom before another high priest called Annas. Now, if you wonder how there can be two high priests, well, you've got a good reason to wonder why there were two high priests. Luke tells us in his gospel in chapter 3 and verse 2 that Annas and Caiaphas were both high priests at the same time. One was the de facto high priest and the other was the de jure high priest. One was the real high priest and the other was the official high priest. Let me briefly explain that. The real priest was a man called Annas. And John tells us in his gospel 
that uh, Christ was first taken before Annas. Now, Annas' residence was pretty much beside Caiaphas's. They were separated by a courtyard um, because the Jews believed that Annas was the real high priest. The fact of the matter is that the Romans didn't like the Jews. Uh, They thought the high priest was too powerful a person. And whenever that power was being exercised, they were quick to step in and take that power away. Now, a high priest was a high priest for life, but the Romans didn't like that. And uh, Annas was actually deposed from the high priesthood by the Roman governor before Pontius Pilate in AD 14. Jews were not happy with that. As far as they were concerned, the real high priest was Annas. And so another residence was built for Annas just across the courtyard from Caiaphas, who the Roman authorities had appointed instead. So here you've got the Jewish people with the person that they thought was God's real representative and the one who was the Roman uh, substitute in his place. And that's why when the Jews are taking Christ uh, for his trial, they first of all go to Annas. It's their way of saying, well, this is the real high priest, and we want him to be in favour of what it is that we are doing. And you'll notice that John in his Gospel, if you read it carefully, simply records the trial before Annas. He doesn't follow the trial before Caiaphas at all. And this trial before, Caiaphas, uh, before Annas is one where Christ speaks. Now, you may remember over the past few days and leading up to the communion, I drew attention to the fact that the Lord did not speak, that he was silent, as the prophet had said he would be silent. As a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. Now, that wasn't true in connection with Annas, and the reason for that is because it wasn't a formal trial. He was just being brought before the real high priest. And Annas begins to question him. He questions him about his teaching and he questions him about his disciples. Uh, Christ's answer to that, just to paraphrase respectfully the answer, his paraphrase is, I've said everything I've said, he said, in public. I've taught in the synagogues all over the land and I've taught openly in the temple. If there is a difficulty with anything that I have to, to, to anything that I have said, let the accusations be made, or let the matters be brought before me. The result was that one of the officers, one of Anna's officers, went forward and struck a blow on our Lord's face with an open palm. That is the very first blow uh, with which the Lord was ever struck. Uh, There were many times in the Lord's life when people wanted to strike him. You'll remember when they took him to Nazareth, to the brow of the hill, and wanted to push him off. The power of God came upon the people in such a way that they simply weren't able to do it. It's recorded very uh, strangely in the Bible because we're not told the detail of it. We're just told that they took him to the top of the hill to cast him off, but that he walked through the midst. How how do we understand that, except just for the power of God, which can sometimes go forth. When God wants, he can close people's mouths, he can stop their actions, 
And uh, maybe we don't even recognize it as being the power of God at the time, but it is the power of God. He didn't want a hand laid on the Lord. Not a hand of violence, not a hand of opposition was allowed to be laid on the Lord until this one. When the officer in Anna's residence struck him open palm on the face. That was a sign, friends, that our iniquities had been laid upon him and that he was going to suffer for our iniquities. That's why that hand was allowed to lie on him. Friends, had that not been the case, do you think the man would be allowed to live? If, if Uzzah was struck dead for stretching out his hand to steady the ark of God, how much more should someone be struck dead for smiting the Lord Jesus Christ? Had our sins at this point not been laid on the Saviour, that man wouldn't have lived a second more had he been allowed to do it in the first place. But after he was struck again, uh, respectfully paraphrasing, the Lord says, asks essentially, what was that for? If I said anything evil, he said, say what it was. And if I have not said anything evil, he says, why are you striking me? The trial was over. There was no trial. With, with Annas, it was just a nod and a wink. Um, we're told that Annas immediately bound him and sent him across the courtyard to Caiaphas. That is pretty much, pretty much the Jewish way of saying, yes, get this done and get it over with. I am in favour with it. Now process it and do it properly. And so they lead him across the courtyard. It's quite remarkable to think that when Christ passes through the courtyard, he passes the fire at which Peter is already warming himself. And by this time, of course, the full court, the full Sanhedrin, has gathered in the house of the de jure um, high priest, or the de facto, I should say, who is Caiaphas. And they would be sitting in a semicircle with Caiaphas himself in the middle. And the trial begins. And it's this trial that's recorded by both Matthew and Mark. And the trial reaches its crisis point at the end here in verses 63 and 64, where the high priest answers, and says, I am putting you under oath by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, to which Jesus says to him, it is as you said. Let's look at the question and the answer. And Let's just look first of all at the question here. Why does Caiaphas ask this particular question? And the answer to that is because the trial is collapsing all around him. And the reason it's collapsing is because it's all done in a hurry, because there's no case anyway, and because everyone brought to help out or to make an accusation falls. Their credibility is just not there. Now, when I say these things happen quickly, the Sanhedrin has already concluded that things have got to be done now or they will never be done at all. They've come to the conclusion that they have let matters go way too far and this is their last opportunity to deal with Christ before there is a popular rising of some kind. I'll say more about that in a second. But part of that meant that they had to very, very quickly 
get witnesses on board. We're told in verse 59 that they sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. I suppose they knew they weren't going to get a proper testimony, a true testimony, but they sought a false testimony. You can always find people to tell a lie. It's quite surprising how many people are are willing to tell a lie given certain situations or circumstances. You'll remember when uh, Naboth wanted to hold on to the vineyard which had been in his family and King Ahab and his wife Jezebel wanted that vineyard. Uh, Naboth refused the vineyard. Jezebel said to Ahab, don't accept that refusal. This is an easy matter to deal with. And we're told that she just found two witnesses evil men called men of Belial, motivated by evil, who just simply made up a story regarding Nabal and uh, blasphemy. And on the testimony of these two people, Nabal was stoned to death. That's That's a solemn reminder to us that innocent people can easily be strung up and found guilty of what they were not guilty of at all, and be dealt with accordingly. It's a foolish belief that we have that if there are two or three witnesses, which the Bible does tell us we must have, but nonetheless it's a foolish belief, if we have it, to think that just because there are two or three witnesses that the thing happened or that the thing was said. Why? Because people are liars. People are liars. It doesn't guarantee a safe verdict. And you should always remember that. People are quick to make opinions about people, very quick to make opinions about people. And very often opinions that people arrive at are made on the ground of no real evidence, no real knowledge. People believe very often what they like to think. Naboth was a good and godly man who died because witnesses testified a pack of lies against him and he was stoned to death. And when evil people are out to get you, or people who are set on evil are out to get you, it's very hard to escape that net. That's why the Psalms are so often filled with um, praise and glory to God for extricating them out of very difficult situations, because only God himself can do that. Um, Courts are not infallible. There's one court that's infallible, and we're thankful to God it's there. There's an infallible judge. And as we thought last Friday evening, there's an infallible advocate who is on the side of every Christian. We're very thankful for that. The infallible court isn't so much of a comfort if you haven't got much of a case, but at least it'll still be the truth. And that's why... If we are condemned on the great day of judgment, we'll know that that court wasn't wrong. We're told that every mouth will be stopped that day. We're told that every knee will bow. And we're told that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That means that even in the heart of the lost, an acknowledgement will be forced from them. It will come from them that this is the truth, that the judgment God has passed upon them is the truth, that the hell that's coming their way is a hell that is deserved because that court has absolute integrity. The judge has it. The advocate has it. And we'll be forced to acknowledge that. So there was a hunt on for, 
false testimony, but we're told that these people who came to testify were inconsistent with each other. And this must have been frustrating for the Sanhedrin. The clock's ticking. And once it moves into the early hours of the morning, well, they have to do things right in a way. The way in which they have to do it right is something I'll come to in a second, but they have to do certain things right. They need to get this trial shut before this evening is finished and the next morning breaks. And at last, we're told, in verse 61, at the end of verse 60, we're told, at last two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. At last. But Mark tells us that even their witnesses broke down. Their witness broke down. One of them, Mark tells us, said that he would destroy the temple of God. The other witness said, well, actually what he said is, I am able to destroy the temple of God. So which was it? In actual fact, it was neither. But the point is that it fell apart. Now, let me say a couple of things about that. The first is that neither are correct. What the Lord said was, destroy this temple and I will raise it. You destroy it, in other words. He didn't speak of destroying it himself. No, the fact is that he would. But he didn't say he would. He was most certainly going to destroy it. Within 40 years of this trial taking place, the Lord was going to so destroy this temple that not one stone would be left on top of another. But that's not what he said in his ministry. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. John tells us that it was an oblique reference to his own body. Destroy it, he says, this temple of God. Destroy this body in which God himself lives. And I will raise it up in the glory of resurrection. But you destroy it. He never said he would himself. So neither witness is correct. But have you ever wondered who's doing the cross-examination? Who is it who brings that to light? Who is it in that courtroom is interested enough to press closely enough to expose the contradiction? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, when in Presbyterian, in Presbyterianism, certainly until very recently in most churches, when a presbytery had a, a case to investigate, they had to appoint some of their own to investigate it. Uh, and if there was sufficient material for a charge, they would themselves argue that. They would be appointed to do that. All that arises from this. The Sanhedrin itself was responsible for cross-examination and for things to be done properly. Well, it had to at least be seen to be done. And we know that there are at least two people in that Sanhedrin who are quite concerned that, O oh Lord, not be put to death. And they are Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus, you remember, was the man three years before who had come to Christ by night. And uh, the Lord had told him about his great need to be born again. And uh, to be born by the power of the Holy Spirit, who so works in his own sovereign way, just like the wind blowing through the trees. 
You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with a man who's born of the Spirit. Now, I have no difficulty believing that the Spirit of the Lord began to blow on Nicodemus himself. No difficulty at all in believing that. And uh, earlier, considerably earlier than this, when they were thinking, you see, there were two points at which they were thinking of arresting the Lord. The first point, point was quite a bit before this, at least a good few months before this, and they sent officers out to arrest him. And you'll remember those officers came back and the Pharisees said, where is he? And they said, well, nobody ever spoke like this man. Again, you see, it wasn't the time. It wasn't the time to lay hands on him. And even those who went to lay hands on him couldn't lay hands on him because of the power of the word this time. It wasn't a mysterious, hidden power, a restraining power from God. It was the actual power of the word of God. No man ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees and the council and the Sanhedrin, they were so angry and they said, have you been deceived as well? Do any of us believe in him? It's just this crowd that doesn't know the law. They're accursed. Astonishing speech on the part of people who were accursed themselves. But Nicodemus being one of them, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, a member of this 70 who have spiritual oversight of the Jewish people, he stopped them and he said, is it right for our law to be judging a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? And they turned angrily to him and said, are you from Galilee yourself? Search and look because no prophet has arisen out of Galilee, which was wrong. And then we're told that everyone went to his own house. But that already tells you that Nicodemus is on the Lord's side. So was Joseph of Arimathea on the Lord's side. Yes, friends, the Gospels tell us that they were secret disciples. And they were still secret disciples because they were afraid of the Jews. But you know, do you know what the Lord does with secret disciples? He brings them out. And he has his own way of bringing them out. And he brings situations about in Providence to bring them out where they can't stay hidden anymore. And this is the situation that comes to them. We're told that when a vote was taken um, at the end of this trial and on the following morning when another vote was taken, The Gospels tell us that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were not consenting to this deed. They voted against it. And they didn't even stop at that. We're told that after the crucifixion, when, well, we read in Isaiah that the intention was to bury him with the wicked. They had a place marked out to toss his body, but events transpired differently. Um, Joseph and Nicodemus quickly obtained more spice than had ever been obtained for any king anywhere, embalmed his body and laid him in a tomb in which no man had ever been laid. You can be sure when the Sanhedrin next met that there were two people not present, two people who didn't want to be present anymore in a court that was cursed, on a court that didn't want these two people present anymore. 
When we stand on the Lord's side, there's a way in which the world says, off you go, as well as us saying, I need to leave. There, there is a demarcation. There's a, there's a choice to be made. Make no mistake about that. Paul, of course, says that uh, he gloried in nothing except the cross of Christ, he says, by which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. I've said to the world, well, you're dead to me. I, I no longer want to live like that and be like that. And the world has said that to you. Well, we can't really function with you the way you are now. That's what happened to Joseph and to Nicodemus. And it was this trial that meant that they had to make the stand and make a stand they took. They were not consenting to this deed and to this decision. But for the Sanhedrin, the fact of the matter is that the trial is collapsing. And Caiaphas is exasperated And he's an exceedingly angry man because he was the one who pushed for the arrest and the trial to take place before the Passover itself. And he had a reason for that. He he felt that the popularity of the Lord was rising again, and so it was. And the raising of Lazarus in Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, just before the Passover, was another critical point for them because The whole of Jerusalem was filled with the fact that a dead man who had been dead for days was alive at the voice and the command of this man. Lazarus come forth and Lazarus came forth. And that's why Caiaphas said they were discussing what to do about the situation and Caiaphas interrupted the Sanhedrin. Most of the Sanhedrin were Pharisees. Some of them were Sadducees. The Sadducees hated the Pharisees. The Pharisees hated the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were discussing what to do about the matter. Caiaphas was a Sadducee himself, which is a kind of liberal theologian who doesn't really believe much in anything. Why people like that have to do with the church, who knows. But one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year. Well, this is the passage that we read first. They quickly gathered the council after the raising of Lazarus. And they said, what shall we do? This man works many signs. You'll notice they're not even denying it. They're not even denying it. Isn't it astonishing how, you, how hell-bent, and I use that word in a considered way, how hell-bent people can be on evil, that they can even recognize the good and just trample on it. This man works many signs. And if we leave him alone, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and take away our nation. And Caiaphas turns to them angrily and he said, you know nothing at all. You know nothing. There's only one thing that can be done here, he says. One thing. It's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he spoke that in evil. But he also spoke it as the last high priest who was to function before the veil of the temple was to be torn in two. And in that year, the most solemn year and the most important year in the history of the world, there's no doubt about that, God made sure that he would speak through the high priest. 
The high priest meant it for evil. But God meant what he said for good. It's a cursed priesthood now. But God will make sure that its mouth utters a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the power and the glory that belongs to him. In other words, there's a vast difference here between what Caiaphas intended by these words and what God intended by these words. What Caiaphas meant is very obvious. Caiaphas is saying effectively, look, if we, if we leave matters, even, even for another few days, if we allow him all the popularity at the Passover that that will bring, there will be a popular revolt. Everyone's on his side. That will lead to a rebellion. It'll lead to Rome crushing us, destroying our temple, taking away our rights and our liberties and our religion. On the other hand, if we kill him, we'll be spared. God's meaning is very different. This man will indeed die for the nation, but he'll die in the way of salvation. And his blood will be a means of saving that nation. And John says, not just that nation, but he will also gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. This is the Saviour, the Saviour of Israel, and the one who brings the light of God to the Gentiles. In that way, it's a little like the saying, when Pilate was willing to release Christ, they said, crucify, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. How do you interpret that? Well, there's a dark way of interpreting it. The guilt lay on a people. The kingdom of God was taken from them and they were scattered to the far corners of the earth. I still remember somebody once saying to me, a Christian person once saying to me, that one of the most powerful evidences for the truth of God's word is the history of the Jewish people. But there's another way in which these words are true too. His blood be on us and on our children. How many of those who said that were delivered by this blood? How many of their children and their children's children were delivered by this blood? There's a dark way and a bright way of seeing the words. Now Caiaphas meant his words in a dark sense. Get rid of this man. Just get rid of one person and the nation is saved. Far better than the nation being destroyed just because of this person. You'll notice, friends, like many rulers in the church and the state, they always look for what works, not, not for what's right, for what works. Pragmatism. The higher up people go in the church and in the state, the more pragmatism rules. You'll discover that. I hope you don't, but you probably will. What works here? What works? Not what's right. But right now for Caiaphas, it's very late in the night. It's nearly the first hour in the morning and the case is falling apart. Does that matter? Yes. Why? Because it has to be plausible. There's two reasons for that. The first reason has to do with Rome. They've got to be satisfied. If they're going to allow a crucifixion, a capital punishment, they need to be satisfied that there was a good reason for it. The Jews did not have the power of capital punishment ever anymore. That power was taken away from them. So it had to have Roman permission. And they want this to go to the Roman tribunal, 
They want to go to Pontius Pilate with it. So there has to be a case. You can't have a charade of people saying this and saying that. The other reason it has to be plausible is for the people. The people were already seething that John the Baptist had been put to death, whom they recognized as a true prophet sent from God, and they're not going to bear this. They're not going to bear just the summary execution of someone that they believe themselves is a man sent from God. And although there is this hostility towards him, you're never to forget the amount of people that are still on the Lord's side. Multitudes of them have come in to Jerusalem. He's come in on the back of a donkey, and they are proclaiming Hosanna, the king of the Jews. It's often said that people are so fickle that they said that one day and crucify the next. That's, that's a misunderstanding of the situation. The, the people who were recognizing his messiahship are not the people who were responsible for crucifying him. What you're talking about is most of the people who have no power and a less number of the people who have all the power. That always makes a difference. Caiaphas is conscious that there's a real danger that this man will be crowned king within the next few days. So he's conscious that what is to be done needs to be seen to be just, even if it's not just. Again, politicians in church and state For them, being seen to be just is more important than being just. You know, there's a saying that says, well, this has to be just and it's got to be seen to be just. But ecclesiastical and state politicians don't function like that. They're only concerned with, is it seen to be just? They're not that bothered with whether it's just or not. So Caiaphas, at five o'clock in the morning, is exasperated, he's angry. And in verse 62, he says to Christ, what is this? He, it's as though he's, he's, he's given up on the prosecutors and the people who are talking. He stands up himself and he, he just addresses them directly in verse 62. And he says, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? Now, of course, there's nothing that shows the poverty of a case like asking the defendants to state charges against themselves. Christ answers not a word. But there are spiritual reasons for that too. As I mentioned to you over the past few days, he is conscious that although this is a charade, it's nonetheless part of the Father's justice against him. It is part of what he suffers as a consequence for sin, that the rage and the fury, the disordered, irrational hatred and fury of men and of devils is arraigned against him, and he's got nothing to say That's an act of obedience, that he says nothing. He opens not his mouth. But then Caiaphas has a brainwave, and I'm closing with this. It's similar to the oath that can be taken uh, in our own Presbyterian churches, which I'll say something about tonight. There's a special kind of oath that can be taken on certain occasions. Here is Caiaphas, and he effectively says to himself, well, there's one way I can get him to incriminate himself. If he's not going to actually do it in the way that we've all wanted him to do it, there's a way in which I can still get him to do it. I can, I can put him on an oath, and I can get him to incriminate himself 
by asking a very direct question. The sad thing is that Caiaphas knows that this strategy will only work if Christ is a good and a true and an honest man. And what's more, it's not only going to work if Christ is a good and a true and an honest man, it will only work if Christ is indeed the Messiah and the Son of God. It's only if all these things are true that his strategy will work. And isn't that sad? And isn't that evil? Isn't that evil and sad? And so he stands up and he says, I'm putting you on oath. Well, that means for him and for ourselves, we'll develop God willing tonight. Let's call on the Lord's name in prayer. O Lord, our God, truly the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately wicked. And uh, we pray to note that even in ourselves too. The need we have to guard ourselves and to keep our own hearts out of these hearts are all the issues of life. Lord bless us, we pray in our meditation on uh, the one who was wounded for our iniquities and bruised for our transgressions. He stood there as the creator of heaven and earth and as the creator of every immortal soul. And he stood there as himself the judge of all the earth. And he stood to be judged by a man who was not fit uh, to judge anything or anyone. What humiliation endured for our sakes. Truly he was taken from arrest and from judgment. And like a lamb led to the slaughter and a sheep before its shearers, so he was dumb, opening not his mouth, until he confessed his own identity. Bless these things too as we pray in his precious name. Amen. Let's um, close singing to God's praise in Psalm 124. And uh, the Lord very often has ways of delivering his people. And uh, he always does, but he sometimes delivers them from very, very difficult situations when enemies overwhelm and oppress them. Of course, it was the Lord's portion that he was not to be extricated that night. He wouldn't be extricated, although, of course, he would finally be extricated. But Israel may say here and that truly, this is the second version of 124. That if the Lord had not our cause maintained, if the Lord had not our rights sustained, when cruel men against us furiously rose up in wrath to make of us their prey, then certainly they had devoured us all and swallowed quick. Now quick is an old word for uh, living. Uh, so a quick person is a lively person. Here it means that they swallowed us alive. They would have swallowed us alive in their hunger for aught that we could deem, such was their rage, as we might well esteem. And as fierce floods before them all things drown, so had they brought our soul to death quite down. But in verse 6, blessed be God, who doth us safely keep 
and hath not given us for a living prey to their teeth and their bloody cruelty. It's no wonder in verse 8 that we can say that our help is in the Lord's great name. Now, whatever you're confronted with, whatever opposition or hostility, you just trust that name. Trust that name and watch his deliverance, the one who heaven and earth by his great power did frame. We stand to sing.